This is a Federal News Network podcast. Agency information technology people are moving on from automation pilots and taking the next step by setting up their network traveling bots free to work around the clock. The Defense Logistics Agency has released nearly 100 unattended bots, and the DOD Comptroller is gearing up to run its own unattended automation scripts. The Pentagon isn't alone. Citizenship and Immigration Services is rolling out automation as a service to help its workforce get more done. For an update on this work, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the RPA Program Manager at USCIS, Michael Pascal. And you'll hear, first, the Robotic Process Automation Program Manager for the DOD Comptroller's Office, Erica Thomas. I'll be talking about our DOD Comptroller RPA program, but just to level set, DOD is very large. We've got a lot of RPA programs across the board. We have a center of excellence now at the OSD Comptroller level that has two primary offerings. One of them is a cloud-based RPA platform, shared service platform that anybody in DOD can join. It has two different offerings right now, both UiPath and Automation Anywhere. So what we're trying to do is where there might be hurdles or climbs that other groups may struggle as they're trying to stand up their own RPA programs, you know, how can we eliminate some of those barriers of entry, some of those pain points? And within DOD, maybe it's not the case for all federal agencies, but at least within DOD, it's a little painful to get an ATO and sometimes to stand up that infrastructure. So as we stood that up, we knew that we had extra capacity to stood that up as a shared service. So we were immediately partnering and had multiple groups in DOD on the platform benefiting from that. Um, not to say that there's not other platforms already set up in DOD, because I mentioned there's already other RPA programs, and that's totally great. It's fine. We're big. We can support that. So we have the shared service as a primary offering. And then I also have a small team of developers. So in addition to the platform as a service and a center of excellence, we also have a small group of developers that we will identify specific automations that maybe are near and dear to controller's heart or near and dear to, you know, some of the the organizations we typically have a lot of interaction with, maybe the fourth estate, for example, uh, so those defense agencies and, and or any universal automations that touch financial management that just makes sense for us to get involved in. So we will um, take on automations that are either internally uh, um, generated um, or Potentially, it's another idea that another group has came to us and we'll take that on. One of the things that I like that our team does is we'll develop automations, again, for a variety of groups, but sometimes we'll deliberately focus on developing an automation for one of those newer groups that's just getting started and they need to prove it to leadership. So when we look at that and there's a good use case that comes in and the group's looking to stand up their own RPA program, if I've got developers available and we agree the automation has benefit, We try to assist those groups as well to kind of get their feet under them so that their programs can grow. Great. Thanks, Erica. Michael, let's hear a little bit more about what is going on over at USCIS. So we actually, we set up this program at CIS with the goal that we wanted to be able to bring, you know, robotic process automation technology to everybody. I actually, I work in the chief data office and what I did is um, I broke a deal with our chief technology officer, Rob Brown. We really realized how technology and data driven our agency was. So we wanted to make sure we had a way to make sure that it was consistently applied. Looking at the data elements across all of our agency, we saw that, you know, no matter how much you used it, how much you flipped, dipped, tripped, and skipped it, it's all the same type of data being used across all of the systems. So we are leveraging RPA as a technology capability to really 
make sure that data is applied consistently across the agency. So what we did is we made uh, a center of excellence. We set up this governance approach that would really make a repeatable process so that everybody had access to RPA capability. And we try to simplify it because we know that this could be kind of a daunting te technology for people to see. It's fairly new to the government. And in doing so, we, you know, we decided that there are going to be people out there who don't necessarily have the skill sets or manpower, but they need this capability. So we set up what we call robotics as a service, where um, if you don't have individuals who are able to get trained up on RPA, we actually have a small team that can actually do the developments for you so that you guys can have access to this capability. Because why shouldn't everybody have access to it, right? Let's share the fun. In addition to that, we also have a training program where we're actually uh, training people to become developers because I strongly believe that this is gonna be another skill set that people have pretty similar to like the Microsoft suite, you know, Excel, Word. We're gonna start to see RPA be a lot more commonplace in the government. Erica, I'll turn it on over to you. I would love to hear more about the unattended bots and where things stand with DOD on that. I know that's going to be a, a different story no matter where you're looking within DOD, but from the comptroller's point of view and maybe some of those fourth estate agencies, I would love to hear an update there. We are really excited to get to unattended. So we started with attended and frankly, I think the majority of DOD agencies that moved out on RPA or have in the past couple of years, they started with attended. That was an easier sell. It was easier to get started. You know, with, hey, it's just it's using the person's credentials. Somebody is monitoring it. They're running the automation. They're running the digital assistant. Um, so we started with attended, and um, uh, I would say kudos does go to DLA. So one of the fourth estate agencies. They have implemented their unattended infrastructure. I think now they have close to. 100 automations now that are unattended, which is amazing, and they have the infrastructure set up for their own. RPA program within DLA, which is amazing. And they've got their own center of excellence as well. For Comptroller and the shared service platform that we have, we have been in the process of standing up our unattended infrastructure for a while. It's taken, I would say, a longer than I would have liked. <laughs> There's been some challenges, um, particularly, you know, as we've dealt with, you know, our IT, you know, cyber shops and, and getting them kind of on board and understanding you know, the capabilities of the technology and the limitations. So this is not, you know, fear of, you know, bots gone wild or anything like that. You know, there is structure, there is order, and this is how we can kind of protect and, and keep them satisfied. So we're in the process now of standing up our unattended infrastructure that will be a part of our shared service platform. Fingers crossed, I will have that up and running. We'll have our IATT for that uh, in June. So in a couple of weeks, um, we're really close and we're really excited to get started on that and start moving out on unattended and get more than just DLA on the unattended map in DOD. Awesome. Well, uh, certainly an ambitious goal there, and it's something you certainly want to get right before fielding it. So very exciting things just on the horizon there. And Michael, I'll throw it over to you. You know, is that something that is on the radar, the idea uh, of unattended bots? You know, I can feel the heat from that question. I can feel everybody over here asking, like, where's my unattended bot? Why am I still pushing a button? What's going on over here? I think that's definitely, that's our path right now. We've been working primarily with attended bots. And I think, you know, from a security and trust aspect, that's how we're trying to gain the trust of our security personnel. You know, there have been breaches and people are scared. Anybody who knows, you know, automation knows that like bots have been around outside of the government, knows that automation and bots have been around forever, right? But um, in the government, we're really looking to be able to service a larger net of people 
And right now at attended bots, um, we're able to handle a lot of transactions and functions between systems. I think people have been satisfied with the ability to just apply this consistency, especially in COVID. Like Eric was saying, we spent a lot of time building up our infrastructure also. This was like, this was a long process that we we learned from. And actually we shared a lot of our, you know, DHS has a great community of practice that we share a lot of information with. I think that everybody is really excited for unattended bots. And it's funny because you start to kind of see the way that they can be applied, not just at the click of a user who needs to perform a function on their schedule, but on a wider scale that can handle, um, like I said, we're very data driven. We process a lot of intake from uh, applications to be able to handle like batch files on an unattended schedule would really transform the way that we can handle the immigration process. I think our IT shop is really headed in that direction. They're kind of focusing on that. Michael Pascal, the Robotic Process Automation Program Manager at Citizenship and Immigration Services, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. You also heard from the RPA Program Manager for the DOD Comptroller's Office, Erica Thomas. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina 
quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer, many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. 
And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.